Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I got a couple things I want to say by the Spirit of God, and I think it'll play into this uh, verse here. Uh, when it comes to fears or insecurities or sin, lust, perversion, timidity, uh, nosiness, these are all symptoms of a bigger issue. And we often constantly repent of bad fruit, and we don't ever get to the root of the issue. And it's, it's one thing to be afraid, but where's that fear coming from? So let me use a dumb example I just learned this summer that I should have learned last summer, but I forgot, so I had to Google it again. So I, when COVID hit, we got green thumbs like the rest of the world because we couldn't do anything. So we got these planter boxes, earth boxes. First year, we grew some monstrous okra. We had okra that were pushing 10 inches long. And my okra was seven and eight feet tall, growing out of a box. You'd have thought I cut up animals and put it in the bottom of it. It was thriving. And then we started doing tomatoes. And um, so we have these larger, I think the Roma tomatoes is what we still got coming up right now. And it happened again this year because it happened last year. But the tips started turning black on the tomatoes, and it's called tip rot. And we had these beautiful-looking tomatoes, but when you go to pick them, the bottoms of them are black. And it's really irritating. So you first you chuck the first couple ones because you think they're anomalies, and then they're all tip-rotting. So I thought, this isn't a fruit. This is a root issue. I'm smart enough to know that. And if I was ignorant, I would just keep chucking the fruit, hoping for a better fruit. And really just waste the, the nutrients in the box, waste the energy that the plant's putting forth to produce what looks like a perfectly good tomato, but on the bottom it's black. And then if you let it grow too long and then it starts to turn inside and the whole thing is compromised. So I Googled, and tip rot is caused by a calcium deficiency in the soil. And the solution is really easy. You just sprinkle eggshells or ag lime, or I have a bucket of ag lime that I let rain collect and I have ag lime water. It's black as tar and you just pour it over it and you redeem the problem. And it's, to me, it, the, the concept is so spiritually beautiful. I can sit there and keep getting rid of fear-filled or lust-filled tomatoes or I can address the roots. Because everything's working as it should. There's just something missing in the total process. And it's as simple as calcium carbonate, which is one of the cheapest things you can get a hold of to fix the problem. And oftentimes we're dealing with issues and we're just repenting of the bad fruit and we're frustrated at the, the tip rot on our, whatever the fruit is, your tomato. We're frustrated with the tip rot and so uh, we just keep chucking it and we never bother to look to the source of it and it's simple as a missing ingredient. Because everything is working according to plan. The, the tomato plant grows like a weed and it's everywhere and the tomatoes are coming and the flowers are pollinating and they're fruit setting and then we're getting these nice big healthy romas and then all of a sudden they start turning black on the tip and nothing is wrong, just a missing ingredient. And I don't know what that is for each and every one of us tonight, but sometimes we're trying to get rid of things and it's not something that needs to be gotten rid of, it's something that needs to be added. There are times where you just cut down the tree because the whole tree is corrupt. But if there's nothing wrong with the tree, we're just lacking something. Find out what that thing is. Brother Sumra would say, uh, wherever your fear or your emotions scream the loudest is where your faith is the weakest. And so maybe if you're dealing with fear, because that's, that's an easy enough issue to relate to, 
then you feed on scriptures that build confidence in that arena. If you're dealing with lust, then you feed on scriptures that resolve that issue. If you're dealing with timidity, if you're dealing with sickness, feed issues. Wherever your problems scream the loudest, Brother Sumrall would say that's where your faith is the weakest. And we know how to feed faith. We know how to fix faith. You fix faith by feeding it. You build faith by feeding it. You don't want to be, you don't want your faith to have really big upper body and little chicken legs. Or like these speed skaters and cyclists, they have monstrous legs and then they look like computer programmers from the waist up. Just to pick on somebody. We want to make sure our faith is balanced. So wherever your mind is screaming the loudest, that's where your faith is the weakest. And we all deal with that. So we're not condemning anybody. But the thing I heard during worship very clearly, uh, and it fits, and I was trying to put my mind on it. Okay, what's that for? I heard the Lord say, quit expecting a utopia. Quit expecting a utopia. Quit expecting perfection in your life around you. And so then I would interpret that for you, as I believe the Lord would give me permission to. It's not going to get better out there. It's only going to get worse. For the Lord to return, the world will get darker and darker and darker and darker and darker. We've covered it in Timothy already. Some shall depart from the faith. Paul's warning Timothy in the first century, it's going to get worse, son, and Christians are going to go to hell. They're going to deny the faith. So if we're expecting the world around us to get better, well, that's not quite hardly fair of us because some of us don't even want to get better. My job as a shepherd is to make us better, and that's a 24-7 job, and we're supposed to be pro-better. Sometimes we're anti-better, and we're expecting the utopia to occur out there. Now, the dangerous thing about expecting a utopia is that, number one, it's impossible. Number two, it's the flavor of the day for socialists and communists. And number three, it's a Gnostic doctrine. Gnosticism is all about destroying the old to rebuild the new because we have better knowledge than God. And as long as the world and our nation is marching away from Christ, we're not getting any better. In fact, it's so proven biblically that in order for us to have better, Jesus Christ himself has to come back and do it himself. And even Christ, for him to do it, he must do so with a rod of iron. Not a scepter of righteousness, a rod of iron. And all of Judaism has been awaiting it and all of Christendom has been awaiting it and it's not here yet. But if we're expecting a utopia, well, it'll never come till Christ does. What the Bible, what the New Testament does prepare us for is persecutions and afflictions, heartache, hardship. But with them all, the Lord shall be with us and shall deliver us from them. So we need to, as one therapist said, adjust your expectations. So that's why I was praying it there because I could see it clearly. That who's telling us to expect this? If we, if we read nothing but the Bible, and I'm all for being well-read, but if we read nothing but the Bible, it gives us hope in the world that is to come. It gives us faith for the now and also tells us, if you want to get ready, get ready, get ready for anything, buckle up because it's going to be bumpy. God will be with us. He'll heal us. We'll see the miraculous, but persecutions and afflictions shall come unto you. In this world, ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. So what we do is we don't, we don't shelter or preserve our families. We prepare them. 
You can't like, my kids are learning all the dirty words because they're running around public school kids now. Uh, you can't shelter them from that, but you can say, all right, we don't use that word. Uh, it's just not a word we use. And to be honest with you, those words don't offend God, but the heart behind them when it's spoken, it's just a vowel sound. Uh, like two years ago, we were driving out to see Mark Creeble when he was still alive. So we're out there, Shepherdsville Highway. <laughs> and there's a trailer out there on the side of the road, checking stereotypes here, trailer. And it has the biggest banner you've ever seen that says blank Joe Biden. I mean, like five foot letters. And Lydia's looking out the window and she, she can read. <laughs> and she doesn't just read, she calls what she reads. So all of a sudden, here's my sweet little nine-year-old, and she says that slogan out loud. And man and I look at each other, you know, like you're doing chuckling. We're just going to let it go because nothing else is being said. And then all of a sudden, Lydia goes, oh, is that the F word? Yes, that's the one. And we don't use it. That's the worst word in our language when it comes to expressions like that. And then she wants to know, well, what does that have to do with Joe Biden? Oh, honey, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> oh, look, deer. <laughs> you can't shelter your kids, but you can prepare them. So this utopic thing we're not going to ever have. I remember reading, um, I can't remember a lady's name. She's kind of famous in Baptist circles or maybe evangelical circles. She's, she's Iranian. Her daddy was a pastor, still a pastor, but she, she's now come to the West. And she said that growing up, part of their church attendance was we have to be prepared at any moment. We could all be arrested under the Shah of Iran. And, and we were prepared, part of our Sunday school is at any moment we could all go to prison and never see each other the rest of our lives. And that was just part of going to church because they were underground. And she said, that was just normal to us. And we were taught, we don't ever deny Jesus. It would be better to die than to deny Jesus. So be prepared to die. And this is your first grade Sunday school. That's what it's like to live under Islamofascism. So now she's come to the West and she said, and I come here and I just think, wow, that was a really different upbringing, but it's all we knew. She wasn't sheltered. She was prepared for what the earth has to offer. So now this ties into 1 Timothy 6.1. And these first two verses are very, very tricky. We're actually going to look at them in the New Living Translation. And I'm going to do my best to address it and try not to open up a greater quagmire of theology. Uh, but I, I want you to hear what par, Paul's dealing with, and we're going to try to give a theological explanation for some stuff. So 1 Timothy chapter 6, because we've been exegeting through 1 Timothy, verse at a time. So you got New Living Translation up? I'll just let you look at it, and I'll read along with it. All slaves should show full respect for their masters, so that so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. I think we understand why that's such a controversial verse. Read it to you again. All slaves should show full respect for their masters, so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. Now, 
We don't shy away from the hard topics. If nothing else, if I don't have an interpretation, I'll just say, here's the verse. I have no idea what it means. Next verse. But when we have explanations, we offer them. Uh, verse 2, if the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. So two things come to mind when you try to put a modernist interpretation on a first century Roman era epistle. And if we don't use a historical hermeneutic and a cultural hermeneutic, what we will do is put a modernist interpretation on it and we will become anti-God pretty quick. So the obvious question is why isn't Paul teaching against slavery? Because that's where our minds go. Why is he saying just because your master is a believer doesn't mean you can disrespect him? Why doesn't it say uh, masters set your slaves free? Why not command that? Your believers set them free. There's a couple reasons for this. And now if we put our modernist interpretation on it, we're going to think nothing but our slavery, chattel slavery uh, of our American history. And that's not the only kind of slavery that existed in this era. So you have a nexus of a lot of cultures happening here in the first century of the Roman Empire. Number one, if you're dealing with Jewish believers, which there would be some at Ephesus, the Jews see slavery totally different than the rest of the world at the time. Jewish slavery is permitted in the Old Testament because it only lasted six years. And it was self-indentured. And on the seventh year, they were released. And every 49 years, the property was released. So you had a constant reset. That has to deal with the year of Jubilee. There were also a lot of protections under the law. So the Jews didn't see it as an issue. That's how people got themselves out of debt. And you only do that once or twice. And you say, you know what? I should have a budget. And there were strict laws for how you treated a fellow Israelite if they were your property. And it wasn't even property. It was a, an indentured servant. Secondly, you have prisoners of war who the Roman Empire has conquered and now brought back. And the interesting thing with those slaves is that, yes, they were slaves, but if they were faithful, they could earn citizenship and actually come out better than had they been in Ethiopia or Northern Africa or Asia Minor or wherever the Roman Empire was marching. So it could have been a better deal from them because it's better than being dead on the battlefield and who knows what happened to the village back home. So there's a lot of opportunity for promotion through that. Third, it is estimated that in this time in history, half the Roman Empire was a slave. And are we interested in a social revolution or are we building the kingdom? Now, the problem with that statement, again, we don't live in first century Roman Empire. So you have no idea how the world thinks. You live at the tip of the spear of modern times. And you have to understand that we understand through the vein of Scripture that God would have all men free except to be the servant, the, bar, uh, the, lo the borrower's servant to the lender. So even if you're in debt, you're still in a form of slavery. And if you're in drugs, you're in another form of slavery. And we still have trafficking that goes on today. Uh, there are different kinds of slavery happening in the earth today. The scriptures still condemn it. And we're doing our best to set people free from it. But we can see now through, I'm going to use a term carefully, 
and then I'm going to mock the term, we can see carefully through the trajectory of Scripture that God was marching mankind towards a liberty for all men. But you're not going to do it when the church is 5,000 people or 10,000 people, and you're trying to get them to leave idols. We can see how the gospel and the doctrines of the Old and New Testament built civilizations and brought about the highest quality of life and freedom ever known. And that is what is technically called trajectory hermeneutics, where you kind of see the trajectory of where scriptures were going. And though we see what would appear to some who want to diminish our scriptures, we see what would appear to some be an endorsement of slavery, though it's not that at all. He's giving, now that you got born again and you possess slaves, or now that you're born again and you are a slave, this is how we're to behave. Because the preeminent thing here is don't blaspheme the doctrine of Christ. They were not building a utopia. See, even Peter at the day of the ascension said, is it utopia time? Is it utopia time? Will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And the Lord said, it is not for you to know the times and the seasons that the Father has put into his hand. And we're still looking for a utopia. That doesn't mean we don't advance things. It doesn't mean we don't reach out to people. But we're dealing with the climax of the ages where demonism is at its height. We're dealing with a people who, a selfish people, a corrupt people who are, who are serving their face and their self. And we're going to try to build a natural kingdom and totally ignore the heavenly kingdom. This is a real distraction. And though there should be a fruit of the heavenly kingdom affecting our natural kingdoms around us, it's very easy, especially in our politically charged day, to be pulled off of God's team and put on to the social justice, economic, ecumenical, world-building kingdom. And you and I are smarter than that unless we're fellowshipping with a different spirit. God does not endorse slavery. The endorsement here is not slavery. It's how you behave in the position you found yourself the moment you got born again. It's not an endorsement of slavery. It's now that you have been born again, here's how you're to treat your master. Now that you're born again, this is how you're to treat your property, your slaves. It doesn't even call them property. And you know, Paul being a Jew has the mindset of the Jewish system that in six years, you got to let him go anyway, though he also understands being a Roman citizen. It's not how it works for Rome. It is how it's worked for us, but it's not how it works for Rome. So tell me, what do you do when you have like six chapters to fix a church? And it is interesting. He doesn't use those six chapters to build a utopia or a social revolution. He uses those six chapters to build the kingdom. So let's read verse 2 again. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well-loved. So he's saying if you're a slave and your master is a believer, you should work harder because that's your brother in Christ. Teach these things, Timothy, and encourage everyone to obey them. We know historically that there are all these different types of slavery at this nexus, and yet Paul does not individually call out or adjust any of them. He just says, here's a general rule. What's interesting is that's where he stops, and he moves on to a new subject. So now, just as a bigger overview of this final chapter of Timothy, there's really three three themes of this chapter. It's slavery, which is the poorest of the poor. Then it's heretics. 
and then it's rich people. So three types of people are dealt with. And the bulk of this final chapter deals with money and greedy people. And I think it is fascinating that this chapter spans one spectrum, one end, which is slaves, which are the poorest of the poor. And then it goes all the way to the other that says, warn them that are rich in the earth. There's no warning offered to the slave. There's a warning offered to the rich guy who has a lot of money in the church. Now, isn't that interesting? There's no warning given to the slave. There is a strong warning given to those who are rich and those who would be rich, who want to be rich. But in between, we have a brief sandwich about heretics. Verse three, some people may contradict our teaching. That's not the previous two verses. That's the doctrine of Paul. But these are the wholesome teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. These teachings promote a godly life. That's everything he's covered in the previous five chapters because he's wrapping up his epistle. Verse four, anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Now that's Paul going to call in names. I like it because it makes me feel good when I call people names. <laughs> feel like Paul. Why can't you be more Paul? He, he, he's, the, he's the apostle of grace. Arrogant and dumb. Does that sound like grace? Does that sound like an epistle hug to you? And he is bashing the antichrist teachers. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. And unfortunately, these are scholars. These are teachers. You want to start splitting. You want to quibble over words. These are the folks that want to nitpick you on social media or nitpick you in a YouTube video because you didn't say it just right. And Paul says they're arrogant and stupid individuals. King James says that they are proud and know nothing at all. They want to quibble over the meaning of words. This stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. You would think these guys founded social media. Because <laughs> there are whole YouTube channels and TikTok channels and, and blogs that this is what they do. Some folks believe it's their job to police the entire body of Christ and they don't just go after doctrine, which I think there's a permission to say, we don't agree with this doctrine. They go after the people. And you can take that person out and call their name if you want to, even though you just disagree with a minor doctrine, but they're just going to be replaced with somebody else. Now, don't get me wrong. There's a time to call out heretics. This epistle proves that, but that's when they're full-fledged heretics. Not just somebody you disagree with on water baptism, or you disagree with on tongues, or you disagree with on provision or whatever you know, a heretic, someone who's hurting the body of Christ, who's not winning anybody to Jesus, you have biblical permission. These people, they just want to nitpick stuff. Oh, it, what, it's just a, a miserable, exhausting place to live. And I feel sorry for anybody that thinks that's their ministry. And they're probably courting demons to some degree. Verse five, these people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt. And they have turned their backs on the truth, though they think they're espousing truth and pointing out falsehoods. To them, a show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. Now, that does sound like Christian television. King James says it, they supposing that gain is godliness. And I like that translation a little bit better because we've come through that in the word of faith circles that we've heard the heretics who they didn't start off as heretics, but they got to a place where they say, look at all the money I have. God must be endorsing me. Well, Bill Gates has money. Steve Jobs has mo had money. 
Jeff Bezos had money. Uh, all these guys have money. God's not endorsing any of them. So money doesn't prove you're godly. Money doesn't prove God's with you. Money just proves you got money. And the people that have to flaunt their money are really flaunting who their God is. So I, you know, there's, there's money that has to be shown off and then there's money that nobody knows about. And I'm thankful I was raised a hippie in Seattle because I got to where I didn't care about name brands. And there is an idolatry that goes with name brands because it shows that you want to be marked with a certain name and not the name of Jesus. And I don't think we see it that way. You want to be known, you want to be marked by, you pick your name. And, and name brand and that kind of pride has always been in the earth. Uh, and I'm not against name brands, but if that's your identity, I think you may have forfeited yours in Christ. Jesus has never come up and checked the back of anybody's tag. He has said, I know your thoughts. I search your hearts and I am not pleased. And I'm sad to say that in our circles, word of faith, there are those that fellowship more around Dolce Gabbano, Gucci, Armani, you, and you name it. Uh, uh, what's the big Hermes, uh, all this Italian and French stuff that, man, we're simple country folk. I mean, like, yeah, my wife said, I don't know how to spell those. You know what we do know how to spell? Dickies. Carhartt. I don't even know if that's three R's or two. It don't even matter. Scribble it. We know what you're talking about. Wrangler. Red Wing. Cat, which is short for caterpillar because that's too many syllables. And there's a big difference between a cat and a caterpillar, but they're the same thing to me. Huh. And I really, I do feel sorry for those who've gotten into a place. And again, I'm not against wealth and I'm not against you having nice stuff. But when that's your identity, who hath bewitched you? You did run well. And now you want to be identified by Armani. That's the name that is above all names and you invoke that upon you. Or it's got to be Gucci. Uh, seriously? I mean, those are ugly colors. I mean, again, if you want Gucci, have Gucci, but in my opinion, those are ugly colors. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I'm wearing a shirt that has a hole in my elbow right now because I fell down the stairs. <laughs> but you don't know that because I have on a suit. And there are those days I pull the shirt out like, man, that's iron. I'll just button it. I mean, these wrinkle needs to be iron. I'll just button it. Nobody ever know. Warm it up, Chris, and all the wrinkles will fall out. I'm, I'm not against nice stuff, but if that's what you're identifying yourself by, that's idolatry. That's idolatry. That's idolatry. And God is not impressed with any of those names that we can't even spell. <laughs> so they think that godliness with, uh, is gain, or gain is godliness, and, and gain is not godliness. Gain is just gain. I, I do like people like Elon Musk, who's incredibly wealthy, or even Steve Jobs. They just wore the same outfit every day. Zuckerberg, I don't think he's smart enough or coherent enough to put on other clothes, but it's just jeans and a t-shirt. I mean, you open the closet, t-shirt, 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 jean, 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 jean. 
I think those guys are so brilliant, they're, they're wasting their mind or spending their mind on other things. Those guys are the wealthiest men in the world and they wear jeans and a t-shirt every day. And like us, us little folks who it takes a third of our income to buy a handbag, like you spend a third of your income on a handbag and you think you're worth something? You can tell there's something broken in our culture. Such weird, perverse materialism. And you have to say, this is the name. Do you promote that Hermes bag or that Kate Spade bag or whatever you're thinking? Do you promote it on social media like you do the name of Jesus? If not, you're a hypocrite. And your purse perish with you. Nobody cares about your stupid purse. Have you ever given that much money to the kingdom at once? I don't even know why I'm on this. We're a simple country folk. <laughs> I don't, but here we are. All right. So maybe I'm just bashing the old word of fake, hyper prosperity, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, say it, slay it, dumb it, dumb it. <laughs> Verse six, godliness with contentment is great gain. The only reason you would save money to buy a Hermes bag is because you know what one is. Hermes bags, I think, can run like $100,000. There's another one I'm thinking of that's just as much. Uh, so I, I would ask you why, you, why are you eating meat beyond your measure? And if you be given an appetite, why haven't you obeyed Scripture and put a knife to your throat? Or do you not read Scripture anymore? Godliness with contentment is great gain. I want great gain. Here's the formula. Godly, content. Ba-boom, great gain. Not even giving and offering is great gain. Godly, that means you're holy and clean, and you're content. That is great gain. True, or key, as NLT says, your true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. To be godly and content is a world of wealth, and we should settle for that and see what the Lord wants to do with us next. Verse 7, because see, now he's transitioning out of heresy and heretics and problems and squabblers and nitpickers. Now he's transitioning into wealth. You can see Paul's train of thought as he's helping young Timothy. And again, he's in Ephesus, a very mature church, a very wealthy church. Ephesus is the hub of Asia Minor. It's a very astute, uppity church. So now one, no wonder he's talking about money. He said, after all, verse 7, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. And, of course, uh, uh, King James is better. He says, we brought nothing into this world, and we'll certainly take nothing out. We can stuff stuff in your coffin. You know, Grandpa wants to be buried with his pocket knife. That's great. What's he going to do with it? I mean, like, if he's doing something with it, y'all buried him too soon. I'm not one to tell jokes because that's a seeker-friendly gimmick, but I got one for you. It just came to me. I think I've told this before. This guy's on his deathbed, very wealthy man. He has three friends he calls to him. He says, you know, the preacher tells me I can't take none of my money to heaven, but I don't know if that's right or not. So I want you guys to do something for me. So I'm going to each of you a million dollars. And when you come to my funeral, I want you to stuff it in that coffin. And we'll see if I can't take it to heaven or not. They said, how are we going to do that? He said, I'll give it to you in gold bars and, and you know, big bills and don't worry. You'll be able to do it discreetly. So sure enough, 
he gives them all money. And the, he finally passes away, and the funeral comes. And, you know, in our culture, everybody comes up, pays their respects. Usually we leave them alone at the casket. That's how we do it. And they, you bend over. And I've seen people kiss corpses before. Never loved the one dead one enough to try it. Sometimes I'm even afraid to touch their hand. But I have seen loved ones kiss. Anyway. So the first guy, you know, he looks left and right, pulls out a couple of those gold bars and shoves them in the bottom, scampers away. Second guy, he's a couple people back. He waits his turn. He's walking. He bends over, puts a couple bars in there and moves on. Third guy walks over, does his thing. So they meet up afterwards and they say, what do you think? You think he's going to get it to heaven? He's like, of course not. We know he's not taking any of that to heaven. First guy says, I got to admit it. I kept one of those bars of gold. No, don't judge me, but we all both know he's not taking it with him. Second guy says, well, to be honest with you, I kept a bar and a stack of $100 bills. I said, we don't judge you. Third guy says, uh, well, don't blame me. Maybe I'm the idiot, but I wrote the guy a check. <laughs> yeah. We can't take anything with us when we leave. This, this would tell me, because we've taught this before, worth repeating again. This tells me that as you get closer to dying and you know when you are, start giving your stuff away. Don't die a hoarder. Don't die and your loved ones think, could I hire someone to burn this to the ground? I, I, my, my doctrine right now, honestly, and I, I kind of get it from Brother Sumrall, is if he said you spend the first 30 of your life getting, the middle 30 of your life living and using, and the last 30 of your life giving it away. I think when you hit 65 and you go into retirement, if you need a hobby, start disbursing your stuff. Some, some of it you disburse to a bonfire. Some of it you disburse to goodwill. Some of it you disburse to the dump. But don't die. Most people know when they're going to die. They know when they're in poor health. Don't sit there and leave your loved ones a mess. And I would also probably advise to some degree, don't leave all that money, if you have any, to your kids and grandkids to be given at a court hearing after you're gone. Why not distribute it the last couple years of your life so you can watch them enjoy it? Send your kids on a cruise, send your, go on a family cruise or whatever, do your thing. But if you can't take it with you, why hoard it up to the moment a tower of hoarding magazines smothers you. If you can't take it with you, start to get rid of it. And this has to be taught in our culture because we're materialistic hoarders. And it's something you have to resist because every one of us wants to be frugal. And we think, you know, I might use that again one day. And seven storage units later, I had that one of those one time. I'm not sure if it's in storage unit a, B, C, D, E, F, or Q. You know what? We should probably just go to Walmart and buy another one, which is what you should have done 30 years ago when you set it aside and said, I might could use this again one day. That is massive truth. Huh. Yeah. So if we have enough food and clothing, let us be content. Enough food and clothing. Enough food and clothing. I have a couple of friends. They do live minimalists, and they have a rule. Actually, one of my friends, uh, a bishop up in uh, the Northeast, he said, if I haven't used it in a year, we get rid of it. 
If I haven't worn it in a year, I get rid of it. It's a pretty good way to live. Amen. I might also add tactfully, if your weight yo-yos a lot, you can't live that way. But I would also ask if your weight yo-yos a lot, what's, what's the calcium carbonate your soul needs so you quit tip rotting? I mean, I grew up in the South, in, a, in this country in the 80s. I learned all about from culture, uh, fat closet, skinny closet. That's an unstable soul. And then, of course, through the 80s and 90s, we saw this thing called yo-yo dieting. And that's an unstable soul. And I think you know a scripture about double-minded and unstable, so scriptures can fix that. So there's really no need to have a fat wardrobe and a skinny wardrobe if you're consistent. We're talking about stuff in this passage. This is a pastoral epistle. He's trying to help the Ephesians who were very wealthy, and they were kind of getting into pride over all their stuff. Verse 7 said, I read it again in King James, we brought nothing into this world and it's certain we can carry nothing out. Having food and raiment, let us therewith be content. Verse 9, but people who long to be rich fall into temptation. Not people who get rich, but people who long, long. He said, give us this day our daily bread, not give us enough bread to feed an army. What if, now, if you're a captain over an army, Enough bread for an army is your daily bread. But the key there is they that will, they that long, those who are, their, their ambition is, I'm going to be rich in life. Well, why don't you say with that fervency, I'm going to be just like Jesus in this life. I'm going to be holy in this life. That's another part of our culture. Of course, it's not just uh, ours. You have to be careful that you don't live just to make money. Those who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Social media has made some people very, very wealthy by being influencers. Of course, the suicide and death rate among those so-called influencers is astronomical. And then you become a slave. Now we're back to that topic again. You become a slave to the algorithm. What does it do to get likes? What does it do to get likes? Oh, if I just show a little bit more skin, I get more likes, I get more friends. That includes, includes, uh, increases my monetization. I wonder if we might be guilty of enslaving people by being on social media. I wonder if we don't maybe contribute to their enslavement because we scroll and like, and they make money off our scrolls and likes and we help them stay bound. Everybody wants to protest Target because they support the gays. You support the anorexic. You support the floozy. You support the insecure girl with daddy issues. I mean, because honestly, those folks, they just perform that they might make some money. They will pierce themselves through, as a, a King James says, but uh, they're trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. Verse, verse 10, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It isn't money that's the root, the love of money. It's the motive behind it. I don't love money. I'm thankful for it like I am any other kind of tool. But nobody sits in the garage and says, well, some of you might, I love tools. I, lo- I love this chisel. This chisel, I'm telling you, I love it. Can't get enough of it. I want five more of them. I have them in all sorts of angles and sizes and metals and wooden handles and leather handles and plastic handles and epoxy. I love a wedge. And I love, I just, I love a chisel. 
But people do that with money. Oh, I love me a Milwaukee. I love me a Saul. I love me, a, you know, whatever. Weird. Nobody does it with tools. I mean, unless you're weird. But people do it with money. Just love some money. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Because if you start getting addicted to it, you'll start compromising just to make more, just to make more, just to make more. And you'll start to justify your compromise of ethics, your compromise of integrity, just to make a little bit more, just to make a little bit more, just, just another dollar more. And before long, you sound like Judas. Just, uh, just another dollar more, just because he had his hand in the Lord's coin purse from the beginning, and he was justifying it. And some people craving money. So we have loving money, longing for money, now craving money. They have wandered from the true faith. Now, what's the common theme we keep seeing in this epistle is people leaving the faith, people leaving the faith. We dealt with, with Judaism or Judaizers in the Talmud in the first chapter where he says, teach, uh, I, I left you there that you'd command some teach no other doctrine and avoid genealogies and endless fables, which is a Talmudic reference. And then we talk about Hymenius and Alexander departing the faith. And then we go into praying for everybody. And then he says in chapter four, some shall depart from the faith. And one of the fruit was that they'd forbid to marry and abstain from meats, which is a Gnostic doctrine. And then he keeps saying, Timothy, judge yourself, examine yourself. The theme of Timothy is we're going to lose believers. Paul was saying that in the beginning of the church. When persecution builds a hot body of believers, how about in our wealthy, name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, say it and slay it, generation, when we have all the wealth and a government subsidy at our fingertips and serving God is so easy because we don't really do it much, how much more will we lose people today, especially to money? He said, people who crave money have wandered from the true faith. Timothy 4.1 says, depart from the faith. This is a different kind of departure. Hymenius and Alexander blaspheme. That's a different kind of departure. There's all these different ways to leave. They wonder. They start working one job, then two jobs, then three jobs, and then they got to pick up another side hustle. And before long, they're just chasing their dreams and they're justifying it. And the devil holds that out there, that carrot out there, so that just one more day, one more 90-hour week, one more 300-hour month, and it, it's going to win. It's going to break. It's going to work. You're going to come in. Your ship's going to come in. It's going to all work out. And you just, little by little, you leave God behind, chasing the almighty dollar. We, we mockingly call it the almighty dollar because it used to be the almighty God. So now we're discussing a totally different kind of idolatry, the worship of money. They have wandered from true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. So I would ask, maybe we examine ourselves. Are we, are we struggling with sorrow, perpetual sorrow? Not the sorrow of grandma just died, not the sorrow of we miscarried again. That, that's a momentary sorrow. We don't, I'm not belittling it, but is there a perpetual sorrow what aches you? And it, you would be wise to examine and see maybe the sorrows because you're chasing the wrong thing. Because remember, previously it said, having food and raiment, let us therewith be content, and godliness with contentment is great gain. So these themes all weave together. If, if your marriage is constantly pierced with sorrow, if your soul is constantly oppressed and pierced with sorrow, it would be a warning light to examine your priorities. What are you chasing? 
Are you chasing God or are you chasing money? Are you chasing a career and a promotion or are you chasing the plan of God? I was uh, last week talking to a ministry friend of mine who got a hold of our book, uh, Parachutes for Sheep, where we talk about how to leave a church right. And I just put forth the simple notion that we all understand in here that we're not designed to chase a career. We're designed to chase a God. His name is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And by chasing that God of ours, he always provides the job that we need so that we don't very easily or quickly leave a church that's established for a promotion or a raise or a transfer. We don't do that. That's not biblical. It's American, but it's not biblical. And if you ever had to leave for a job, maybe you're desperate and there's no job opportunity and you got to feed your babies, you're going to have to really prayerfully consider and see if the Lord would give you permission. So that's what we covered a little bit in that book. And this pastor friend of mine who has a very large church, he said, you know, I finished that book and that notion blew me away. That thing, it's just been gnawing at me. He said that we're not designed to chase careers. We're designed to chase a God. And I thought, well, do you teach your people to chase money? Because that's what they're doing. If they're chasing a job, they're chasing money. Is God not big enough to supply your needs where he calls you? So, so consider this really cool tidbit. So we know the story of Elisha. God tells him, prophesy that there'll be no rain for three and a half years. Okay. And you're going to suffer with everybody. So that's like saying, stand on that branch and saw it off while you stand on it. So the prophet prophesies his own dearth. It's not like you guys suffer and I'm headed to Hawaii while you guys go without for three and a half years. Oh, so he has to go to the Brook Cherith. The Lord says, go to the Brook Cherith. I've commanded ravens to feed you. So he goes there to the brook runs out. That's a hydrologic issue. No rain. Eventually the brook, which is a spring, which is an artesian aquifer, it's going to dry up because the water table is going to drop. So now the brook runs out. He's got to go somewhere else. The Lord says, now go to Zarephath. Do you know where Zarephath is? That's the region where Jezebel's from. Kind of a critical note there, isn't it? Who's killing all the prophets? Jezebel. So it's like saying, go to Putnam County. That's like saying, go to Zarephath. And where is Jezebel from? Cookville. So for him to track, uh, track into her territory is to risk life. But he says, I've commanded a widow there to care for you. And everywhere God guided his man, he provided first by birds, then by a dying widow. The least obvious sources. And if God can guide the Old Testament prophet and feed him with birds and feed him with widow's oil, he can supply for you wherever he's called you. So the point is to this, we don't chase money because I don't want to be pierced through with many sorrows. The world gives them enough freely. Why would I bring them on to myself? You know why we have a comforter? Because life stinks. Now, I'm enjoying life, and it's not a bad confession, but we have to have a comforter because you're going to need it. Yeah. Uh, you just think of all sorts of safety issues when they hand you, like you go hunting or you go into grizzly country and they give you like a flamethrower and a gun. Why do I need this? Bears. They don't give you a suit made of bacon. You're going to need this. When I worked at the zinc mine, we could not go underground without a rebreather or what's called a self-rescuer. And because if there's ever a fire, it would produce nothing but carbon monoxide and 1% PPM carbon monoxide or less than 1% PPM carbon monoxide will kill you 
very quickly. So this rebreather uh, is a chemical, dry chemical thing. And so you have to put it in your mouth and you bite down on it. It's like a giant scuba breather and it hangs off your mouth. I still have two of them. And then you, it has these things that pinch on your nose. And so what you actually do is end up breathing the carbon monoxide through this giant chemical filter and it converts carbon monoxide to carbon dioxide so you don't die. The only problem is the chemical reaction is exothermic. So you burn your lungs, but you don't die. And the more carbon monoxide, the greater the exothermic reaction, the greater the burns to your lungs. And the key is to get to the rescue chamber as quick as possible because it's sealed and you can get oxygen in there and you'll live. But there are many reports, especially coal mine fires, that the rebreathers have given the lungs second degree burns because of the intense heat but you can't take it off. So why do they give these? Because you might die otherwise. <laughs> why does the Lord give us a comforter? Because you're going to need them. Quit looking for a utopia. If you had the utopia already, you wouldn't need the Holy Spirit for his wisdom, his comfort, his guidance, or protection. We're looking for a utopia. That's a socialistic endeavor, and we're not socialists. We're not of that devil. It's a Marxist endeavor. It's a, it's a agnostic, it's a, a Gnostic endeavor. We're not looking for utopia. We're looking to preach the gospel. Amen. Keep going. Let's try to finish this thing tonight. But you, Timothy, King James quotes the Hebrew more direct, Greek more directly. Oh, man of God. Oh, man of God. You're a man of God, so run from all these evil things. If the preachers on Christian television had actually read their Bible, they probably would have gotten off of Christian television and moved away from some of those faith circles. To obey that verse, you have to avoid people who live in verses 9 and 10. So run from all these things. Pursue righteousness and a godly life. Our job is to pursue a godly life, not a social media persona. Our number one seeking is a guide life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then everything else is added. Along with faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. And those that live on social media, I don't see a godly life. I don't see faith. I don't see genuine love. I don't see perseverance, and I don't see gentleness. I see the opposite of all that. I see frustration. I see fear. I see shame. I see anger. I see uh, a weakness. I see hostility. Fight the good fight of faith, verse 12. Hold tightly to the eternal life to which God has called you. If God has called you to it, you haven't obtained it yet, but you've got to hang on to it. That's in the theme with we're going to lose believers. He's telling his son, again, this is about the third time you can hear him saying, I don't want to lose you, Timothy. What does Paul know that he's only alluding to here? If this is the third, maybe the fourth time you can hear Paul's heart saying, Timothy, I don't want to lose you. And by that, he means to the world, to carnality, to the rejection of the faith. Lay hold of eternal life is what the King James says. Lay hold eternal life to which God has called you, which you have confessed so well before many witnesses. And I charge you before God who gives life to all before Christ Jesus, who gave a good testimony before Pontius Pilate, and you obey this command without wavering. Then no one can find fault with you from now until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. So again, he's saying, finish your race, finish your race, stay clean, stay holy, lay hold of eternal life. Church, do you understand how quickly the world is pulling people away from faith? Do you see it? The scudders see it. They travel Pastor Caleb and Miss Tiffany get it because they pastor. 
We're watching people get pulled away or they're being pulled away from genuine, sincere churches to those that have a different Jesus now. Same kind of cross, but a different Jesus because the Jesus they talk about is nowhere to be found in the Bible. Verse 14, obey this and then no man will find fault with you. Verse 15, for at just the right time, Christ will be revealed from heaven. And we keep wondering, when is that right time? At just the right time, he will be revealed from heaven by the blessed and only almighty God, the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no man, no human can approach him, nor human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor, power to him forever. Amen. Verse 17. We're moving along here to try to finish this up. Teach those who are rich. We're back to talking to the rich. You can see Paul try to get off the subject, and the Holy Spirit bring him right back to it. You see him kind of, he's talking about rich people going to hell, rich people going to hell, people leaving the faith, and then he's worried about Timothy again. This is, again, the third time he's talking about something, and his heart goes to Timothy, and he warns Timothy, and you think he'd be done, because then he, gets to, he always ends up glorifying God at the end. And then it's like, reset. And then the Holy Spirit comes with another wave that says, you tell those, teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud. I don't care what your name brand is, but God's not impressed with it. You do realize that handbag was made by somebody, right? Probably out of a cow. Maybe that's your golden idol. Maybe that's your calf. You know, those shoes will wear out, right? Don't be proud and don't trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Wait till the next stock market crashes. Their trust should be in God who richly gives us all we need for our enjoyment. I want to pause there and say that God gives us things to enjoy. We're not supposed to live as these monastics who, if we're having fun, we're in sin. If we smile, God is grieved that the more itchy our clothing, the more stinky our armpits, the more weird our hair, the more our hair looks like a homeschool kid licking our upper lip constantly. The more we look like that, the holier we are. God's not into that. He gives us things to enjoy. You know what I'm talking about. We homeschool, by the way. <laughs> quit licking your upper lip. It's weird. Unless there's milk on it or ice cream, quit licking it. It's a nervous tick. Why are you so nervous? <laughs> he gives us things to enjoy. Those things you enjoy, God, God wants you to enjoy them. Sin aside, we get it. You enjoy ball game? Enjoy ball game. You enjoy fireworks, fishing, hunting, enjoy shopping. You know, as long as you can afford it, enjoy it. He gives us things richly to enjoy. He's a father. He likes watching his kids enjoy stuff. All you have to do is have kids and you realize the joy it brings you to walk your kid down the Walmart aisle. My generation was the, uh, the Sears Wish Book. And to see and circle those things a hundred times between October and December, see if mom and dad would get it for you. And see what interests them so you could bless them with it. That brings a joy to parents. He gives us these things we need for our enjoyment. Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need. I don't know why I'm hitting on it. I'm not against expensive, fancy purses. But when's the last time you saved up an offering that large? I'm not against whatever handbag you want to have. I like nice stuff. My name brands are not known. But when's the last time you saved up that much money just to give in an offering to a missionary who has to skip meals? 
I'm not a, but honestly, if you have to save up to buy it, you can't afford it. Yeah. Or maybe you shouldn't. But like, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not against it. That's the wise, the wise way to do it. If you're going to buy something expensive, save up to do it. But when's the last time you saved up five grand to buy a missionary a vehicle he needed? I mean, you can buy a missionary vehicle or you can buy yourself another purse that nobody cares about but you and your ego and your insecurity and your social media addiction. Now, I know this is not our church unless somebody here is like, oh, I got to get me that $5,000 bag. Why? My first car was $5,000. And it had four-wheel drive. What's that bag going to do? You are, let me tell you, you are cookful people. Do you know what that means? Something's going to spill in that purse. It's going to end up in the floorboard of your French fry covered car. <laughs> and you're going to stain that expensive cow skin or whatever your thing is. And it's going to be just like a ratty Walmart purse in six months because you are Cookville people. If this is for a Cookville person, I don't know. <laughs> Tell them to use their money to do good. They should be rich in good works and generous to those in need, always being ready to share with others and not just your name brand. By doing this, they will be storing up their treasure as a good foundation. I'm pretty convinced the social media church will have zero rewards in heaven because they already got it. Instead of crowns, they have hearts. Instead of crowns in heaven, they have thumbs ups. They got their reward. I mean, if you've posted everything you've ever done for the kingdom, that is your reward. And it hasn't fixed your weird, broken soul yet. By doing so, they will be storing up their treasures, a good foundation for the future so that they may experience true life. Verse 20 and last two verses. King James says, Oh, Timothy, he calls his name for the first time since chapter one. You hear his heart again. Oh, Timothy, guard what God has entrusted to you. Here's a fourth or fifth plea with the apostle for his son in the faith, a pastor entrusted with a strong church. You hear the apostle by the Holy Ghost say, anybody can fail. Anybody can fall. Anybody can walk away. Anybody can apostatize. Anybody can deny Christ. Oh, Timothy, that O is in the original Greek. It's a pleading. Oh, foolish Galatians. Oh, Corinthians, it's listen to me. Guard what God has entrusted to you. Avoid godless, foolish discussions. That would kill most of your social media chatter. I have a lot of preacher friends who finally, 12 years later, have gotten off of social media because all they were doing were debating morons. I watched you on your telecast and I want you to know I disagree. Why would you bite on that? But I have friends that have. You're not going to convert that guy. He watched you on television. He wasn't in the house of God. He watched you on television. You make him feel important. Jesus doesn't make him feel important. Arguing with you, someone who God has promoted, makes him feel important. Why give him the time of day? Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you. So I'm not even supposed to discuss things with people who are against me. Why would I give you the time of day? You're not for me. It's not like you're for me and you have a question. It's not like you're for me and I need to get something right with you or I need to help you. You're against me. If you're against me, I have a commandment not to even acknowledge you. That would get every pastor off of social media. 
It's right in Pastor Brett. It's dead on, spot on accurate. How many of my pastor friends have sinned against this verse? Because they don't even know it's the last two verses of Timothy. But they want to get on social media and violate 1 Timothy 6 because they have to be right. Avoid godless, foolish discussions with those who oppose you with their so-called knowledge. Well, you know, I was watching a YouTube video, and, and you're an idiot. And that's your life? <laughs> Some people have wandered away by the faith. How many times has that theme hit this epistle? Some people have wandered from the faith by following such foolishness. May God's grace be with you all. Basically, God help you. <laughs> this is, again, I remind you as we close here, this is the epistle of much encouragement, and it is still a bleak epistle. The theme, the common theme is we're going to lose people. We're going to lose people. Then it's interspersed with, I don't want to lose you. I don't want to lose you. And since you're pastoring, here's how you do it. Here's how you do it. But I don't want to lose you, but we're going to lose people. But I don't want to lose you. And here's how you promote elders. But I don't want to lose you. And this is what you tell rich people. And this is what you tell the idiots. But I don't want to lose you, but we're going to lose people. That's, that's pastoring. So the next time you want to play Monday morning quarterback and decide that rather than pot roast, you want to chew on me after service. Just remember, I know my job description. And I would say half of you don't even read your Bible through the week. And we're word people. Which words? I don't which word because it isn't the Bible. So what kind of word people are you? <sighs> Good Arian. Bad Ariel. <laughs> Feels like a good time to pray. Amen.